All right, John chapter 17. This painting by Claude Monet hangs down at the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh. It's one of several that he did of um, these different landscapes. He did a whole series on water lilies. Um, this is called the Sunset and Entreat, I think is how you pronounce the place. Um, there's, it, I want to I put this up just to prove the futility of trying to describe it to you with words, okay? There's, there's not much point. It's like me trying to describe to you what it's like to look at the Grand Canyon. You can't do that. You, you can't describe what it's like to look at the Grand Canyon. I don't think you can do that with a, with a masterpiece like this. Um, and Susan, I've had the privilege of, you know, traveling a lot of places around the world and we always go to art galleries. Um, but there's a depth to it. There's a, there's dimension to it. There's, there's things about it that just can't be described in, with, with words. At least I'm not able to describe it with words. I'm, I'm not the person you would want to try to describe this, this painting to you in any kind of technical sense. Um, in any kind of sense of a critic or someone who could describe all that's going on with those impressionist strokes, you know, of Claude Monet, it would be futile, and I'd uh, and I'd, I'd feel foolish trying to do it. I feel that way in some sense with this passage today. Um, it's I've always heard, and I've always had a lot of older guys tell me that you know those those day when you when you can. When you stand up to preach, if you don't feel some sense of trepidation, if you don't feel some sense of really fear, some sense of nervousness, if you will, call it butterflies, call it whatever you want to call it. When, if you stand up and don't sense that, you need to stop preaching. You need to quit. Okay. Well, today is, man, it's, I'm struggling. Not, not in a sense of struggling like that. But I feel like I'm trying to present something today that is way beyond anything that we can understand. And you know what it is? It is because it's the mystery of the Godhead. It's the mystery of, 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 of who God is, of what he's like, of biblical truths that are shared with us about who God is and who the Lord Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is. And it's, it's a mysterious thing that we're going to look at this morning. And it is something that is seen literally with only eyes of faith. It's only, that the, Holy, it's only the Holy Spirit who can take these words that we read, that we hear from the mouth of Jesus himself, and, and help us understand the implications of them, help us understand what a difference they make in our lives. Um, so let's look. Let me just read this to you. Let's start in John 17 in verse 1 with this, what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. I touched on a portion of it last week. This is, this is what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. It's his last conversation, if you will, with his disciples before he goes to the cross. It actually starts back in John chapter 13 with him washing his disciples' feet. Um, but, but then it, it moves through this teaching that he gives us in these chapters, uh, this, long, this long discourse, if you will. And then it finishes with this prayer. 
And this is an amazing thing because this is like the prayer that Jesus uttered as he stood outside of Lazarus' tomb. And he said as he prayed that, I'm not praying that for my sake, I'm praying it for the sake of those who hear me. So he was praying out loud, instructing as he prayed, even outside of Lazarus' tomb. And he's doing that here in the upper room as he prays with his disciples. So this is for us. We have the opportunity to eavesdrop in and listen to God the Father and God the Son in this conversation. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so it begins in verse 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is amazing. Jesus prays this first portion of this prayer for himself. And he prays that he would be glorified. All right. Now, we're going to talk a lot about glory today. Glory is seen in different ways. It's defined different ways in the scriptures. Glory is that manifest, visible presence of God in the Old Testament. It Glory is what we get or see when we see the attributes or the characteristics of God that we can see visibly. Glory is what Jesus demonstrated when he was transfigured before the three apostles, the three disciples there on the Mount of Transfiguration, that what had been clothed inside his human flesh just blew up and burst out. The glory of God was seen on and in Christ by those disciples that day on that mountain. Well, here Jesus is praying for what he set aside that I read earlier in the book of Philippians that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And what he emptied himself of, or what he set aside was, I believe what he's praying for here, which is the eternal glory that God the Son had with God the Father before this world existed. Jesus is praying that that would be restored, that he will go back to that same place, position, prominence of being glorified in heaven the way he was before he came to this earth. And he says, I have done what you sent me to do. I have revealed you. I have reflected you, he says. I have done the work. And this is before he even goes to the cross. So he prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John goes on to tell us in that prologue that all things were created through Him. and Without Him was not anything made that has been made. And then later on in verse 17 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory of Jesus that was eternal... 
He's praying that it would be restored now or that he would be back in that place of glory. Let's go on. He then prays for those disciples, those apostles that are with him there in in that upper room. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So in verse nine, he prays for them. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and all yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may become one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prayed for himself and for his own glorification, if you will. He prays for his disciples really two things. He prays for them to be set apart and be safe. Not safe in the sense that we might understand safety. Because he says, I am sending you out into the world. Now, the world in John's gospel is the opposite of the redeemed. The world is this place of rebellion, brokenness, and sin. The world is a place of darkness in the gospel of John, as opposed to Jesus, who is the light. So the world is... As Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not praying for the lost world. I'm not praying for the rebellious world in this prayer. It's not that he doesn't love them. Because John also tells us that this lost, broken, rebellious world is the world that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have life. So he loves the world. But here the world stands in contrast. And Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but I am sending my apostles out into this world. And it is rough. It is deadly. This world is controlled by Satan. And and Satan desires nothing more than the destruction of God's people. He wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to hinder in any way that he can the work of the gospel And the work of gospel people. And Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. The world is who needs this gospel. I'm just asking that you keep them. Keep them to yourself. Sanctify them. Set them apart. 
What is it that sets the apostles apart and sets us apart in one sense? It is truth. It is God's word. Sanctify them by your word, he says. Your word is truth. There's an important point in there, even in the nature of God's word. This does not contain truth. It is truth. It's important that we understand both of those things. It is truth. And it contains truth. But Jesus is saying there, your word sanctifies my people. It sets them apart. It is truth. Just as Jesus, the living word, is what? Truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. And the world will hate, hate those whose truth is God's truth and not the world's. The world will hate those whose ways are the ways of Christ and not the ways of the world. And he says, I'm sending them into the world, protect them, and keep them. And then he prays for those who will hear that word from those apostles. He prays for us. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing. He's praying now for two millennia worth of believers who are going to believe in that message that has been passed on from the apostles. Oh, just remember, church, we don't need a new gospel for 2024. We need the old gospel. We need the gospel that has been passed on generation after generation after generation given to us by Christ. And Jesus prays now for our unity. And so as we begin this new year, as we kick off our life groups this Wednesday night, it's important that we recognize that any success, any strength, anything that works and works well this next year, will not be the result of our numerical strength, our financial strength, by the amount of money that we give. It won't be because of our public visibility. It won't be because of our facilities. It won't be because of how smart we are or any of those things. None of those things matter. Unless what we see Jesus praying for here is a reality in the life of his church. Jesus knew that what was vital to the work of the gospel is the supernatural, mysterious in one sense, unity of God's people. What matters to the work of Westwood Baptist Church in 2024 is the unity of Westwood Baptist Church in 2024. And it will not be a unity that's based on like-mindedness in any realm of reality. It'll be a unity centered on Jesus, centered on the Godhead. It's the unity that Jesus prays for and that he talks about here as he prays. So he prays for the unity of his church. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me 
and loved me even and excuse me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prays for our unity. And that unity that he prays for here, first off, is a unity that is that is supernatural in the sense that it binds us together through the ministry of his word. It binds us together through the ministry of his word, the centrality of his word. That was what was the distinguishing mark, if you will, the characteristic of the apostles. I send them into the world, he says, and they are consecrated or set apart because of your word. Your word is truth, he says. So here, Jesus says, they will believe in me. We will believe, those who come to faith in Christ here in 2024, will believe that age-old message of the gospel passed on from the apostles. They will believe the word. You see, Jesus, we talked about in Sunday school today, Jesus is the perfect priest. Well, he is also the perfect prophet. The perfect prophet. And what Jesus is saying here as he's praying this is exactly what we see throughout the word here. He is that he is what Moses said would come after. In Acts chapter 3, Peter's quoting, and he says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Well, he's talking about Jesus. Back in our study of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 1 in Revelation 1 says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made known it by sending his angel to the servant John. The only reason I reference that is because here's the way it works. God gave that word to Jesus. Jesus gave that word to the angel. The angel gave that word to John, and John gives that word to us. So Jesus is that prophetic, perfect prophet. By that word, Jesus' disciples are set apart. Because of that word, Jesus' disciples are hated. And I believe that's a timeless truth. With that word, they and we are sent out. That's what we're sent with. Nothing else. We're to take God's word, the truths of the gospel. And by that word, lost or saved. Just recognize that as Jesus prays. They have believed in me through that word, Jesus says in verse 20. So we are bound together in a unity through the ministry of the word. We are also bound together then in a supernatural, mysterious unity that is the supernatural, mysterious unity of God. Did you hear what I just said? Do you understand what I just said? Probably not, and that's okay, because neither do I. The full extent of it is what I'm talking about here, okay? 
Jesus is praying for a supernatural unity among people like you and me that is based on the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's repeated. He just repeats himself over and over and over. May they be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they be in us. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, he says. And that we would be loved even as the Father loves the Son. So this pattern is is clear in Scripture, and it's held up for us as that model for this unity. Let me give you a word that I posted this morning early. I think it was about 5.30. I put it up on the the Westwood Facebook page. Um, Perichoresis. You're going to get a real quick systematic um, lesson, okay? Perichoresis. It's a Greek word, and it's used to describe the Trinity. And I know we talk about the Trinity Some, and I know we use all of these really poor, poor, poor illustrations in trying to describe it. Um, If you hear somebody say the Trinity is like, stop listening. Stop listening. Because whatever comes next is going to be wrong. It's not like an egg. It's not like a seed. It's not like, just stop listening if you hear, the Trinity is like this. I'll explain it to you. It's not like that. Perichoresis is a word that the church fathers have used that, that describes what is the reality within that trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as distinct. And I'm just going to read a portion of what I posted, okay? Just, just listen to one little brief paragraph here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, and yet we must not think of the three persons as three faces in a yearbook, This is Kevin DeYoung, and that's a great way to put it. This is not like three faces in the yearbook. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells the Father. And the meaning of perichoresis means, first, that the three persons of the Trinity are fully in one another. And second, that each person of the Trinity is in full possession of the divine essence. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, and we can go on. They are they are not those those persons. They are separate in that regard. And so what perichoresis, what the Trinity teaches, is that you cannot have one person of the Trinity without the other. We don't believe in modalism. We don't believe that God the Father manifested himself in one way at this point in time, and then he manifested himself through Jesus at a different point in time, and then through the Spirit after the book of Acts. We don't believe in modalism. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Augustine put it this way. Each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. Okay. He's Augustine. I understand that. I mean, I don't understand it, but I understand what he's saying, okay? Let's just look at a couple of different passages of Scripture for just a second. Turn over to the book of Colossians. This isn't a sermon on the Trinity, 
But I am taking the time to at least help us see what Jesus is saying here, how profound it is. In Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Back in John, in this upper room discourse in chapter 14, listen to what Jesus says. In John chapter 14, let's pick it up about verse 8. Jesus has just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you have, if you had known me, he says, you would have known my Father also. So Jesus is making this Correlation. He's making this absolute claim to divinity. Do never, never believe someone who would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. He did repeatedly. And here he says that. And then he says in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And I think Jesus went, oh, man. Really, Philip? I don't know that he slapped himself in the head like that, but Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, how can you say show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And I could read several different passages there. But in John, in John chapter 15, um, in verse 26, he says, when the helper comes, talking about whom the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So here Jesus is talking about God, the father, talking about God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about them being in, being with, yes, being distinct, roles and responsibilities, all of that. So in verse 21, he's praying that they may be one father like us. You and me and I and you, that they may be in us. In verses 22 and 23, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So here's, here's the picture that Jesus is, I think, 
putting before us with this prayer that he is praying. This unity within the Godhead is an eternal, an eternal reality. Jesus has already prayed, restore to me the glory I had with you before this world was even spoken into existence. It's eternal. God has always been in perfect fellowship, love, joy as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God didn't create this world because he was lacking something. He didn't create this world because he needed something. He did not need us. And he did not need this world to complete something that was insufficient or missing. He's perfectly complete. Eternally perfectly complete. And yet in his grace, he allows us to to be a part of that perfect unity. Let me describe it this way. The unity that we have with Christ, in Christ, in the Godhead is a present reality. That is, if you are in Christ today, and we use that in Christ a lot, but if you are in Christ today, by faith you've trusted in Jesus, this is a reality in your life today. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, he says, into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So... We are new creatures in Christ. Amen. That is a present reality. We have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ in the newness of life. He has taken up residence in us. We are not ourselves any longer. Our bodies now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a present reality. But it is also a progressive reality. Jesus is praying in verse 23 that they may become Perfectly one. The word there is telos. It's the word we studied in depth when we were going through the book of Hebrews. The intended end, if you will, that they may become perfectly one. We are in Christ, but we are growing into Christ. We are growing into the reality of who we are in Christ together. Okay. But this unity with Christ and through Christ is also not just now and not just progressive then, but it's practical. It's practical. This unity is the basis of everything that he calls us to do. Look, listen to what Peter said in First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us precious and very great promises that through them, Peter says, listen to this, we may become partakers in the divine nature. That should catch your breath. Jesus has come into this earth, laid aside his eternal glory, wrapped himself in human flesh, been perfectly obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, died a substitutionary death that we deserved, was raised from the dead three days later and has ascended back up into heaven so that we can participate in godliness in the very nature of who God is. And that we can escape this world and the corruption of this world that the sinful desires that Peter talks about there. The unity of Christ is practical, church, because apart from it, we can do nothing. Turn to John chapter 15. 
also a part of this discourse. I got to imagine that the disciples, obviously, they walked out of this upper room with Jesus at the end of that night. And I think they probably just walked out of there going, what in the world did we just hear? I believe that's exactly what happened in the upper room after Jesus came to them after his resurrection. And all of a sudden they got it. They got it. At least more than they got it that night. And they continue to get it more and more and more. That's, that's just what progressive sanctification looks like. That's what it means to grow in those things. But in John chapter 15, listen to what Jesus says. You're familiar with this, I know. Starting in verse 5. He says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you hear him talking about abiding and obedience and love and fellowship? He began this discourse by saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. That love for one another is not something, church, that we contrive. It's not something we concoct. It's not something we coach up in each other. He lives in us. And we live in him. We have, our, we have our, our home with him. Jesus, Jesus prays that in this prayer. We will come and make our home with them, he says later on in John chapter 15. So this is the unity that Jesus is praying for. I'll, I'll make application from that in just a second. Then Jesus prays for the impact of this unity, if you will, the witness of it. Look at what he says in verse 21. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 22, may they become perfectly one so the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The unity, Jesus says, of the church will validate the gospel message. Or the lack of unity will invalidate the gospel message. Jesus says it's that interrelated. It's that integral. The unity of the church will validate the gospel message of the church. The unity of the church and the gospel message of the church are actual displays of the very glory of God. God shows himself off through the unity of the body and through the gospel as the church proclaims that message. We are a display of that glory, the very glory of Christ. Remember, the glory of God is that radiant display of his attributes. Well, how does the world know what God is like? For crying out loud, they don't even know who he is. 
And John and Jesus tells us this. The world has developed their their inclinations and their ideas and their incantations and their, you know, kind of the well, this is what I think he might be like or she or whoever. Jesus said the world doesn't know you. The glory of God is made evident through the body of Christ, through the church of God. The glory of God is that display of God's attributes. And Jesus, now we understand this, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his what? His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. I love the outdoors. I, there's nothing I'd rather do than sit out in the woods and just watch a sunset. I mean, that's, I, there's nothing I'd rather do. But that glory is nothing compared to the glory that's found in Jesus. That's demonstrated and displayed in Christ. So the love of God is demonstrated in that regard. The power of God is demonstrated in that regard. So the unity of the church validates this gospel message. It validates this unity that we're talking about. The unity of the church and the gospel message is the display of that very glory. Jesus is the ultimate display of that glory. But where is it ultimately seen in Christ? This is an amazing thing in John's gospel. Where do you think the ultimate display of God's glory in Christ is seen? It's seen in the ugliness of the cross. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12. The context is important. In John chapter 12... um, some people have come to see Jesus. He is, he's made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And some Greeks, okay, some, some Gentiles have come to seek Jesus. It's a, it's a profound moment in his ministry and in his life. It's a profound, a profound moment, I think, in even redemptive history. But all the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not time. First time in John chapter 12, these Greeks come to see Jesus. And Jesus says in John chapter 23, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, How do you suppose that's going to happen? Listen to what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Down in verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. It says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And, and it just goes on. John gives us the commentary. He explains what it means. Jesus says in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now the judgment of this world, excuse me, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth. I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
You want to see the glory of Jesus? Look at the cross. Don't look at this well-stained, sanded piece of furniture. Look at that awful, gross cross. Look at Jesus, naked, dying, pierced, wounded, shamed. That is the glory of God. Like you will never see it again until we get to heaven and see Jesus exalted. Jesus on the cross and raised from the tomb. That is his glory. So that hour has come. My reason I I, I even go there and talk about that is that the impact of our unity, the witness of our unity, the message of our unity is Jesus crucified and him alone. That's the gospel message that gives glory to God. It is there in Christ that the love of God is most perfectly manifested. It is there in Christ that the display of God's eternal, internal joy The joy of the Godhead, the God between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is experienced in and through his people as we are in Christ. And it stands in stark contrast to this temporal, relational, political, chemical kind of happiness that just squirts up for a few minutes and then is gone in this world. That's not the joy we're talking about. That's not the joy that Jesus is talking about. It's the joy of the Godhead, the joy of Christ. And it's the generosity of the Godhead. It's the love and the joy and the generosity. See what kind of love the Father has shown to us, it says in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love it is that he has demonstrated, that he has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is who we are, John says. I went back through, and I would encourage you in some post-study, just going back through John chapter 17, and count how many times you see the word give or given. It's repeated over and over and over and over. Point being, our God is a gracious giver. And he has given us himself in Christ. And so that is the impact of our unity. That's the, that's the witness of our unity. The unity among us is the love of Christ. It is the joy of Christ. It is the generosity of Christ. It is, it is as God's people have the mind of Christ that we read about in Philippians chapter 2. That mind which was in Jesus, that he laid aside all of that that was inherently his and put it aside so that we could come to faith in Christ. And look at how the prayer ends. Jesus prays not just for the witness, but he prays for the unendedness, if you will, of this glory of our unity. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has already said, you're going to see my glory when I'm lifted up on the cross. Temporal. Here, horizontal, you'll see that glory as Jesus is lifted up between heaven and earth. But he is praying for us to see it eternally in all of its fullness. I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So within that Godhead relationship, there's perfect love, there's perfect generosity, there is perfect glory 
And Jesus is praying. He's praying what he's already promised. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's made that promise. And now he's praying it. Well, actually, he's not praying it. He's demanding it. Who has the audacity to go in the presence of God the Father and say, I want this. The Son does that. That's exactly what he says there. Father, I want this. I desire this. He's not really asking for it. He's just saying, I want this. I desire that those whom you give me will be with me and that they will see me in the fullness of my glory. The fullness of it. We saw a glimpse of it when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John says. We'll see the fullness of it when we go and are with him. In fact, is this not what the whole redemptive story points to and looks toward? God came down and tabernacled with his people in the Old Testament, right? He came and met with his people there in that tabernacle, there in that Holy of Holies. God with us has always been the goal. And that word became flesh and came among us for a little while. And then that glory burst out there on the Mount of Transfiguration temporarily, just for a few moments for those three disciples to see it. And in the end, in the end we'll hear that loud voice from heaven that declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. <laughs> and, he will be, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God, will, God himself will be with them as their God. Father, I want them. Do you hear Jesus saying that about you? I want John with me. I want Ben with me. I want Susan with me. I want Jerome with me. If you're in Christ today, Jesus is making this demand, if you will. He is declaring this before God. I want that one with me. To be where I am. So that they can see me in the fullness of who I am. That's the ultimate goal of this prayer. But Jesus doesn't finish with just that ultimate goal. There's an ultimate mission at work here too. Alright? Oh righteous Father. Only place in the New Testament you'll see this term used for, for God. Oh righteous Father. Perfect judge if you will. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you sent me. So here Jesus is declaring this spiritual reality that we have come to accept the word of the gospel. We've come to accept the word of the apostles. That Jesus is God in flesh manifested among us. And he says in verse 26, I have made known to them your name. And look at what he says. I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, through the work of the, the body of Christ as we are grounded together in Christ and growing together in His Word, Jesus is fulfilling this prayer. He's fulfilling this mission here. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through the church, Jesus is sending us out 
to do what he is saying here that he is doing for us, which is manifesting the name, which is demonstrating to us and showing to us the glory of the name that is above every other name. This is the name that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which they're saved. Only the name of Jesus, right? We understand that. This is the name that Paul says, whoever calls upon that name will be saved. The apostles said that as they were released from prison there to that Philippian jailer. This is the name that whoever calls upon it in faith is saved by it. And this is the name that Paul says in Colossians, we're to do everything that we do for the glory of it. That's the focus of our mission, church, here over this next year. Let me wrap this up with just three points of application, okay? Here's the first one. This, this prayer points us, I believe it's pointing someone today, pointing maybe some of you today, to God's great generosity in Jesus the great love that he has for the unlovely, for the rebellious. I hope you hear through the work of the Spirit this day, this word that says that God does love you. And he has demonstrated that love for you in Christ. It's what John says in 1 John chapter 4. In this the love of God was made manifest to us. Right In this, the love of God was demonstrated to us, that God sent his only son in the world that we might live through him. And then here's what John says. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hear this today if you're an unbeliever, if you've never trusted in Jesus. God loves you. And as Brother Dick would have said, there's nothing you can do about it. But God loves you today. And he sent his son to die the substitutionary death for the sin that you have committed. And the gracious gospel invitation is for you to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. This prayer points us again to God's gracious gospel generosity. And church, we must, we must be sure that that's the first thing on our lips over these next 12 months. The first and only thing. This truth of the gospel. Secondly, this prayer should be a pattern for our praying this year. This should be how we pray for our church. This this should be how we pray for each other. Jesus teaches us this as a model prayer. And so we pray these words. We pray that the name of God will be exalted. We pray that the unity of God will be built up among, among our, our, our fellowship. We pray that for other churches in our community. We pray that, that we will be bound together in the, in the love and the joy and the service and the grace and this Christ-like. We pray that the fruit of the Spirit will be manifest among God's people here. That love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We pray that for each other. Thirdly, this prayer must be not just our prayer. It has to be our pursuit. It has to be our pursuit. Now, the goal here is not uniformity. Okay? Hear that. The goal is not uniformity. 
There is absolutely nothing God-glorifying about being able to love people exactly like you. Jesus said, even sinners do that. There's nothing God-glorifying about loving people that I get along with fine because I'm just like them. I read a book this week, and you get to read it too. (laughs) We've ordered it to use in our life groups. The title of the book is Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy. This room is full of people like that. (laughs) Eight truths for pursuing unity in your church. So we're going to read this book together. We'll talk about it a little bit on Wednesday night. And I just want to share two little quotes out of it. I know our time is, is over, but I just want to finish with this because I think it's important for us to hear Jesus pray for unity and listen to what that unity looks like. Okay? He says this on on one page. Easy love rarely shows gospel power. It doesn't take any gospel power to love people just like, for me to love people just like me. All right? Here's what he says. I thought this was profound the first time I read it. I read it several times. The differences that threaten to tear your church apart are opportunities to demonstrate that being in one accord with Christ Jesus is all we need to be in harmony with one another. He's referring back to Romans chapter 15. That's how with one voice we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. I think this is important for us to hear. If your church is about Jesus and immigration reform, you rob Christ of his glory. If your church is about Jesus and homeschooling, you rob Jesus of his glory. If your church is about Jesus and a political position, you rob him of his glory. Just as God gets greater glory through redemption than through creation alone, the glory he receives in your church's unity is greater in disagreement and difference than if everyone were in the same place to begin with. That's profound, church. The key to our unity is not us getting along in all these other areas, getting along in all these other ideas or positions or parties Or beliefs. The key to our getting along is Jesus. He finishes the book with this. And this is the only other quote I'll read you. If you want to move from. And and, and this touched me too. Because these people that drive me crazy. What is our usual first line of defense? What's our first thing? I'm just going to avoid you. Right? (laughs) I mean, people that drive me crazy, I don't hang out with all the time. Neither do you. He says, if you want to move from avoiding those people to loving them, 
not just out of obligation, to loving them with joy. He says you must learn to root your friendships, not in the past, but in the future. So his point there is what I closed with. Jesus prayed that one day we will be with him where he is and we will see his glory in all of its manifest awesomeness. And that's where we're all going to be together. And with that hope and that promise, we can work through our various differences and disagreements. I've had conversations over the last few weeks with a few pastors who dread the next 12 months. They dread it. Because there's another election coming up. And there's going to be more discussion and disagreement over different issues. I don't. Because I do believe that all of these opportunities for disagreement are opportunities for miraculous God-glorifying unity. Now, we'll have to walk with one another through it. We may have to hold one another accountable through it. We may have to say, what in the world are you doing? But we will do it for the glory of God. And we will do it for the unity of His body. And for the validity of the gospel. So that Roxborough will see that our Jesus is worth trusting in and loving and believing. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for letting us listen in on your prayer. And I pray that those words would take root deep in the heart of every one of us. Be glorified through your church here at Westwood, Lord. Be glorified through your church here in Roxborough. Be glorified as you bring someone to Jesus, Lord, for salvation today. And we pray that in his precious name. Amen.